Well, you want to get out your sermon outline. It says seek and find at the top. And I need to turn that right side up because I don't read very well upside down. We are in the book of Mark, and uh, it's been exciting, at least for me, hopefully for you, to get back into one of the Gospels and see Jesus and be reminded why we all walk through the doors on Sunday morning. The, uh, today we're in two uh, similar but different uh, passages, uh, Mark 1, verses 14 through 20, and then we're going to jump to verses 35 to 39. And so next week we'll pick up what's in the middle. But we're looking at these two because, as I said, they're similar, but there's some differences. And hopefully we'll figure that out as we go. So let's read uh, this as uh, it is God's word, the Gospel of Mark. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Peter, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And then jumping down to verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we do so need it. We know what the gospel is, but we doubt the power of the gospel to change our lives. And we know who Jesus is, but we are not so amazed that we'll drop everything to follow him. Lord, forgive us. Prepare us to be your disciples. Teach us to be faithful to Christ and obedient to your word. We need to know how to follow Christ. We need to know how to trust. We need to know how to fish. We need to know how to pray. Thank you that today we're learning from John Mark, the protege of the Apostle Peter and follower of Jesus, as he brings us the earliest eyewitness account of the life of Christ. Help us to hear it and understand it and believe it and obey it. And so we pray, speak through the Gospel of Mark this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Odds are... You're not willing to trust a good portion of the American media today. It's not a dramatic bet there. In fact, there isn't a whole lot of trust happening anywhere in our society right now. 
The General Social Survey reports that only 30% of Americans agreed with the statement that most people can be trusted. That means 70% disagreed with that statement. And while trust in our neighbors is decreasing and trust in the government is at historic lows, it is the news media that's taken the biggest hit. No one feels they can trust the media anymore. Conservatives have zero trust in CNN or MSNBC, just as liberals have no trust in Fox News. That's astounding when you think about it. Half the country thinks that the other half is producing and consuming news and information that is misinformed and unreliable, and vice versa. And each side thinks they're right and the other side is wrong. So why do we have such a hard time trusting? Why do we lack confidence in others and in our institutions? Why are we suspicious of intentions and motives and outcomes? Well, one key factor, say many Americans, is this fairly recent phenomenon of so-called fake news. According to a 2018 Gallup study, more than 80% of Americans believe the news media have an important role to play in democracy. But at the same time, 75% of those same people agree that fake news is crippling that important role of the media. But none of them could agree on what actually constitutes fake news. Our society is suffering from a truth decay. And the result of a truth decay is suspicion and uncertainty and alienation from one another and from institutions. And when truth goes, trust goes. And yet almost everyone agrees that trust is a fundamental aspect of a well-functioning society. And as Christians, we should lament its decline. But even as the integrity of our news outlets seems to erode before our very eyes, even as we're inundated with fake news, we must never let our faith waver regarding what we do know to be reliable and trustworthy and true. And that's the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. The Greek word is euangelion, where we get our word evangel from, which is the root word of evangelism. It's the message that the soldier brings from the front lines that the army's been victorious and the war is over. Jesus Christ has come and conquered sin and death. The war is over and now we have peace with God. And we have to re receive this news with faith, which requires trust. Because it's not a blind faith. Reformed theology is traditionally used a threefold definition of faith as knowledge, assent, and trust. So there has to be factual information that's first of all known. Secondly, we have to assent to it or agree uh, with it. Third, before we can trust it or put a meaningful faith in it. And so what things must we know to increase our trust in the good news in an age of fake news? We start with a very simple but quite profound truth that this good news comes from God. Everything else is based on that reality. The reason the biblical gospel is good news 
worth believing is because it originates from God. It's not the invention of men. You remember, this is Paul's primary argument uh, for the Galatian church, why they should believe uh, the good news that he announces to them. Galatians 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel originates in the eternal counsel of the triune God, not in a 60-second report in the nightly news. And because it comes from God, it is true. God deals with that which is fact, not that which is fake. And as truth continues to decay in our society, we can't let that cause us to doubt the truthfulness of God. When the devil speaks, he reveals his deceitful character. John 8, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. However, when God speaks, he reveals his truthful character. And where there is truth, there can be trust. The scriptures repeatedly affirm this throughout the Bible, God's truthfulness. Both in the Old Testament, one example, Psalm 86, 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And then another example from the New Testament, Romans 15, 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises. If you think about it, the majority of fake news seems to be produced for the purpose of just stirring up people's anger. I mean, it seems the main purpose is to divide our society even more. And sadly, there's those people who find pleasure in stirring the pot. And sometimes we have unwittingly uh, been stirred up with it. And so rather than be engaged with the world around them, people get enraged at it, often for misinformed reasons. And then when people eventually realize they've been misinformed, their tendency is more anger and less trust in any of the information offered to them. We become more isolated because we don't want to risk getting burned again. Not so with the gospel. Consider what the Apostle John writes near the conclusion of his account in John 20. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God's gospel, declared by his apostles and uh, prophets and preachers, isn't given in order to divide people. It isn't to stir up the pot. It isn't to mislead. God declares his good news so that people would believe it and in believing receive eternal life in his name. The news, this news is so unique in that it's giving the world the facts necessary to live forever. What could be more important than that? Remember that as we open Mark 1, our text for today. God's desire is that we'd be informed, that we would know, that we would learn, that we would trust. All of Scripture is given that we would believe the facts of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. 
And when we feel that trust is in short supply, then we can turn to God's word, which never fails or falters. Even in an age of suspicion and doubt, this is something we can bank on. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The gospel deserves our acceptance. It's worthy of our trust. Why? Because it's true. And we should receive it with wholehearted faith. And the beautiful thing and the important thing needed today is that once we embrace this good news in faith, we're equipped to confront a world of lies and deception with the truth of God. We can and must go out and share something stable and foundational to people who are living precariously in a fragile world of mistrust and misinformation. They need truth. They need good news. And we've been called to give it to them. After all, that's the king's message. That's the first blank in your outline. The king's message, verses 14 and 15. Now, you have to understand, Mark is just giving us a summary. Actually, almost a year has gone by since verse 13, the last events Mark recorded, which we looked at last week, the baptism of Jesus and the temptation in the wilderness. According to the Gospel of John, Jesus had gone to Galilee, come back down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and then went north again through Samaria, where he had that conversation with the woman at the well. And so now, almost a year has gone by. Mark doesn't actually tell us that. We only know that from the other Gospels. So now we're back up in Galilee. John the Baptist has been imprisoned. His life is almost over. The reason for his being here has been eclipsed by the coming of the king, and it's time for Jesus to begin his preaching ministry. It's taken some time, hasn't it? I mean, Jesus is 30 years old, and we know his public ministry only lasts three years, so he needs to get with it, right? Stop and think about that for a moment. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism. That was a year ago. Very little has transpired in that year. Jesus has gone up to Galilee. He attended a wedding. He met a woman at a well. You know something? God isn't in a hurry. If you don't remember anything else this morning, remember that God isn't in a hurry. There's nothing of a marketing strategy about the way Jesus brings about the kingdom. There's no announcement by Jesus of a surefire guaranteed formula for success in the work of building the kingdom. And we're going to see over and over again in the course of this gospel, as we see it in all the gospels, that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. He builds his kingdom using different principles and methods than the world uses. And Mark emphasizes that. Mark is very intentional in what he tells us about Jesus. In this text, in this Galilean ministry, Jesus is establishing himself as king. And everything we see in Mark 1, actually in Mark 1 through 8, has to do with establishing Jesus as king. And so what does the king say, starting at verse 14? Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. 
and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the king's message has three points. So very Presbyterian. First, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. And this turning point has to do with his coming into the world and beginning his ministry. He's talking about something the Old Testament's been anticipating for hundreds of years. And it's finally arrived. God isn't in a hurry. John Stott, one of my favorite authors, has this great little book called Why I Am a Christian. First of all, all John Stott's books are great. I love his books. I make my students at RTS read one of his books. It's, it's old. It's about preaching. And I just complain it's like really dated. And he talks about technology and the, and the technology that's about to be unleashed on the world. And it's all stuff that's already come and gone. It's like, what, is, what are pagers going to do to us? You know, yeah, we don't even have those anymore. But then he talks about the effects of them. And that could have been written yesterday. And all my students look at it and say, it's really dated, but like all that stuff he says is going to happen, that's like going on right now. They've been saying that for 10 years. Anyway, I love John Stott. In this book, he is replying to the philosopher Bertrand Russell, who in 1927 wrote this very famous book called Why I Am an Atheist. John Stott was six years old when it came out. He wrote his reply when he was 82. He died in 2011 at the age of 90. So it wasn't a quick reply. He said it took him a lifetime to reply because he needed a lifetime's reflection and a lifetime's discipleship in the kingdom of God. God isn't in a hurry. And the first reason he gives in this book, Why I'm a Christian, is this text. This text, Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. It's the fact that the first thing Jesus said was, history has a turning point in me. All of the Old Testament, in terms of its prophecies and anticipation, has reached its culmination in me. Jesus was very conscious of that. Remember later, he'll go into the synagogue. He's going to read part of Isaiah 61. And when he's finished reading, he'll roll up the scroll and sit down, Luke. And he's going to say, Luke 4, 21, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He uses the same word as used here in Mark 1. The message of Jesus is that all the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in him, in Jesus the King, and in no one else. It's fulfilled in him and him alone. The time is fulfilled. The second point of the king's message is that the kingdom of God is at hand. His message is all about the kingdom of God. There's a sense in which the entirety of the gospel of Jesus can be summed up in that little phrase, the kingdom of God. It's all about the kingdom. And Jesus is saying all of the... Old Testament finds its fulfillment in me, and the message that I come to proclaim is the message of the kingdom of God. That expression, the kingdom of God, only occurs seven times in the Old Testament, mostly in the Psalms. But there's a sense in which the whole Old Testament is about the kingdom of God. 
It's about the rule of God and the kingship of God and the dominion of God and the sovereignty of God. And that God is establishing his gospel in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of Satan. And from then on, we see the king building his kingdom. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God has come. It's at hand. It's here. In the coming of Jesus Christ, something of the fulfillment of God's plan, God's design, God's decree has now come. Now, some of you may know we talk about the already but not yet. This is a good example of that because there's a sense in which the kingdom of God has yet to come. After, don't we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come? And we want to see the kingdom of God and the rule of God and the sovereignty of God being stretched from shore to shore until that great day when Jesus in all his glory will come again on the clouds of heaven with the trumpet of God and the sound of an archangel. So there's a sense in which the kingdom is yet to come, the not yet. But Jesus is saying there's another sense, the already, in which the kingdom has now arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. The rule of God, the dominion of God, the sovereignty of God is found in Jesus, and it has now come. So that's his second point. First, time is fulfilled. Second, kingdom of God is at hand. And the third is this command to repent and believe. To repent and believe in the gospel. The two go together, repentance and faith. Not one without the other. Repentance and faith always go together. And Jesus comes in the world and he begins his public ministry. And the first words are out of his mouth are, you need to be changed. You need to turn. You need to change your mind and your heart and your ways and your attitudes and your habits. His first words is there's something radically wrong that needs to change. And you need to believe in the gospel and believe in the promise of God and trust Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. That's the king's message. It's a simple message. It's a message about the rule and dominion and the sovereignty of God that finds expression in this message of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the message of Jesus. That's what he comes proclaiming. But then we have to ask, who's listening? Who's he talking to? Who's hearing this? And who's responding to this message? And that brings us to the king's disciples. The king's disciples, verses 16 through 20. So it's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed it. So Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. And he sees Simon, who he's later going to call Peter, his brother Andrew. Now you have to understand, it isn't these men had never seen Jesus before. According to John's gospel, they saw him right after his baptism last year. The disciples already knew him. And you may remember that he's already called Andrew, and Andrew has followed him and actually gone where Jesus was staying. And no doubt over the months that have transpired, these disciples have thought and pondered and deliberated as to 
who Jesus was. So now they see Jesus again back up in Galilee, and he calls them. And so this invitation by the lake, it's not a sudden invitation. They've had a year to learn about him. So now a year later, he's walking along the shore of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon and Andrew and then James and John. He calls two sets of brothers. That's the first thing you think, yeah, he doesn't doesn't really know what he's doing here. Call them brothers. That's asking for trouble. More than that, he calls four fishermen. Why not four lawyers? It spent a lot of time answering that question. How about doctors? No, he's the divine healer. He's got no use for doctors. You may have thought he'd call four uh, great teachers from the synagogues of northern Galilee, someone they could bring to Jerusalem. Nope. Four fishermen. I know it's easy to downplay the education of these men, but remember they wrote much of the New Testament, and they wrote some things that are hard to understand. Peter actually says that about Paul, but you can read some things in Peter that are hard to understand too. And so by the Spirit, these men are transformed. Jesus takes them from their vocations, from their day-to-day ordinary lives, and he calls them to be his disciples. As we'll find out in the rest of Mark and in the book of Acts throughout the New Testament, He calls men of rugged determination. He calls them because of their character. He calls them because he sees something in them that you and I may not see. Now, this call has two parts. First of all, what kind of things? I mean, if you are calling them, who would you call? We went over this in the high school class uh, this morning, and we call people who are popular, who are powerful, who are wealthy, you know, who were great speakers. These fishermen are 0 for 4. Jesus doesn't always call who we think he should call, which probably means the error is on our side, not his side. But that's common throughout the scriptures. He never calls the person you think he should call. He calls that guy, and everybody's like, no, not him. And that's the guy he calls. And that happens here. And as I said, this caused two parts. And the first part is to follow Jesus. Just follow me. Before you can do anything for Jesus, you need to know him. You need to know what he thinks. You need to know his priorities. You need to know what his opinions are on this, that, and the other. You need to sit at his feet. You need to listen. You need to commune with him. You need to talk with him. You need to ponder his words and actions. You need to allow him to instruct you. You need to love him and be prepared to say, wherever you lead, I'll follow. Think about that. They're fishermen. That's what they did. That's the level of their expertise. And Jesus is going to change their lives. He's going to raise some of these disciples to positions of incredible influence. Think of Simon Peter, who for much of the Gospels only opens his mouth to change feet. He has a few things he says absolutely brilliant. And, of course, Jesus says, my father revealed that to you, which I think also means, like, there's no way you came up with that on your own um, because we know you. And uh, I worked for a colonel once that was very outspoken, and one day he turned to me and goes, I'm just like Peter without hair because he was completely bald. And I was like, ah, now I understand. Um, 
But one day, Peter's there at Pentecost, and he gives this amazing sermon, and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ with all his heart, and thousands repent and believe. He's a different guy. His life has gotten changed. He's gone through a lot. He's going to be one of God's instruments in turning the world upside down. Now, imagine Peter would say, for the rest of his life, you know, he'd have one of those moments, something would happen, and he'd be like, you know, I'm just a fisherman from Galilee. That's all I am. But by the grace of God, he called me to follow him. And second, it's a call to be fishers of men. I mean, imagine the scene. You're there at the Sea of Galilee, and here are these guys with their nets. You have this idyllic picture of the seas lapping on the rocks of the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there's fishing boats, and there's fishing nets. And this guy, Jesus, just walks up and says, I will make you become fishers of men. How does Jesus make them become fishers of men? Well, we can answer that question by asking, how were Simon and Andrew and James of John made fishers of fish? And the answer, of course, is actually somewhat simple. Through watching their fathers, over a long period of time, they learned the ins and outs of fishing. And there's something there that's profound because Jesus is saying, look, if you follow me, if you sit at my feet, if you listen to what I say, if you watch what I do, I'll make you fishers of men. Learn from me. I'll instruct you about evangelism. I'll tell you how to witness to other people. And what happens? Well, they watch him talk to a rich young ruler and watch that guy go away sad because he loved riches more than he loved Jesus. And they learn something about evangelism. They watch Jesus talk to a woman at the well and they watch the King of Kings and Lord of Lords bring that woman down, down, and down, exposing her sinfulness and her need and then drawing her to himself. And they learned. They watched and listened as Jesus spoke to one of the great preachers of the day, Nicodemus in Jerusalem. He was known as a great spokesman, a great preacher, a great teacher. And Jesus spoke to him and said, you must be born again. And they watched and they listened. They watched as he spoke to more than 5,000 people on the side of a hill. And they learned how to become fishers of men. They learned from his example. They learned from his teaching. They learned what kind of fishermen Jesus employs in the work of spreading his kingdom. Fishermen who are poor in spirit and who mourn over their sins and who are meek and who are pure in heart and who are peacemakers and hunger and thirst for righteousness and who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And they respond to the king's message and so they become the king's disciples. There's a third thing I want us to see. For that, we need to jump down to verse 35. And that's the king's power. The king's power. In between verse 20 and 35, Jesus is going to do a bunch of cool stuff. And then you get to 35, and they explain how this happens. It says, In rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town, so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues 
and casting out demons. So it's early in the morning. Jesus gets up while it's still dark, and he goes to pray. Some of you get up while it's still dark, and you go to work. Jesus goes to pray. That's a beautiful thing. We could just pause there and reflect on that for the rest of the day. Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one who casts out demons and heals people with a word, still needs to pray. And we think we don't. So why did Jesus need to pray? I mean, after all, wasn't he God? Well, I guess it depends on what he was praying for. We know from elsewhere in the Gospels he often prayed for himself. We know that he prayed for his disciples. And we know he prayed for the people around him, the people he'd be preaching to and healing and delivering and calling. The great Christian writer E. Stanley Jones once described prayer as a time exposure to God. I love that. He used the analogy of his life being like a photographic plate, which when exposed to God, progressively bore the image of God in keeping with the length of the exposure. Prayer is a time exposure with God. And Jesus exposed his humanity to God, even though we're told the whole fullness of God dwelt in him bodily, already being the exact imprint of his nature, but he's refreshed as his light is exposed to the Father's light, his purity to the Father's purity, his holiness to the Father's holiness, his life to the Father's life. There's also a very human reason for Jesus' prayers, because even though Jesus was God, he didn't live apart from the Father, but he lived as a man in dependence on God. He said, John 14, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus depends on the Father for his power. One of the reasons Jesus did this, because he wants to, us to live our lives on the same basis. If Jesus prayed in order to live a godly life full of kingdom power, so should we. Jesus is the internal, eternal God incarnate, the creator of all, who Romans 1.3 says is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And yet he still lived by prayer. Christ lived in oneness with the Father, but he still needed regular times of prayer. Prayer is the great necessity of our spiritual lives. We need to pray. We need to find times to get alone with God. We need to get up early if necessary. Now, few of us are called to spend hours in prayer, but all of us are called to spend some time in prayer. Pray while you're in the car. Pray while you're walking the dog. Pray while you're cooking meals. Pray while you're getting dressed in the morning. It'd be great if everyone could find time to be silent and still, but that doesn't work for a lot of people. But there's something that you do every day, and you can pray while you do it. Because prayer is where the power comes from. Finally, one last thing. Notice here, Simon is searching. It's a great word. It's sometimes translated as hunting. He's hunting for Jesus, searching for him. 
And he says to him, perhaps with some indignation, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus says, well then, let's go somewhere else. It's not the answer you're expecting. There are a lot of unexpected things here. Jesus brings a message that they didn't expect. They didn't want. It's not what they would have said. He picks the wrong people. It's not the people we would have picked. And he's going to the wrong place. We want him to go back to where he's already been. He's he's done all this cool stuff in Capernaum. Come back there. He says, no, we're going to go somewhere else. Jesus doesn't do what we expect. He doesn't always do what we want. Lots of unexpected things in the book of Mark. And so they go off through the regions of Galilee and they visit synagogues and Jesus preaches because that's what he came to do, to preach and assert his authority over the kingdom of darkness. He exercises the power that comes through prayer. Now you can come here on Sunday mornings, Sunday school and worship, and you can come to youth group and you can come to community groups and to women's Bible study and you can go to a whole variety of meetings and ministries, but do you pray for any of those things. When Christians gather, we want that group, that meeting, that ministry to do powerful things in the lives of others, right? And Jesus models that the exercise of power in the Christian life comes through the Christian prayer life. And when you pray, you find out that you can hear Jesus speak out of his word with the voice of a sovereign God and you can know the truth and you can share in the Holy Spirit and you can taste of the power of the word of God and the goodness of the word of God. And when you do that, you'll find out more and more and more that you just trust Jesus. When Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John, he used an artistic flair He borrowed the idea of fishing, and he spins this metaphor to capture the imagination of fishermen. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And the two sets of brothers didn't know what that entailed. They knew enough to follow. So they leave their nets of many years, and they follow Jesus along the shore. And I can imagine they hung a sign on the door to their place in their village that said, Go on fishing. It's still true with a different kind of net and for a different kind of fish. The metaphor is still a strong picture for us today, even those of us that live in a world of corporations, concrete, sound bites, and email. A simple return to the words of Jesus and his fishing metaphor remind us once again that one of our tasks is to help fish people out of the ocean of confusion out of a sea of folly, out of a river of rebellion, despite all the trappings of modern life. God has called many fishermen since Peter and Andrew, James and John. He called a German named Martin Luther. He kind of had an impact on our world, the whole Reformation thing. He called a Frenchman named John Calvin. The first great theology, the first great Protestant theology called an American named Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest theologian America ever produced. But he doesn't just call great theologians. He called an Egyptian girl named Sandy Suplee and a Japanese boy named Satoshi Kawachi 
and an Indian girl named Jemima Jagar, and a big kid from Kentucky named Matthew DeLong. Those are all missionaries we support. And God called an Englishman named John Stott, born in 1921. And while a schoolboy during the Great Depression, he responded to God's call. 20 years later, in 1958, the year I was born, he wrote a book called Basic Christianity. He revised it and updated it in 1971. It was his second book. He eventually wrote more than 50 books. He could do that because he was single. I own 45 of them. His writing culminated in The Radical Disciple, published in 2010 when he was 88 years old. It would be his last book. The last words of this book are goodbye and farewell. In 1974, the year I became a Christian, I was given a copy of Basic Christianity by John Stott. It was given to me by a youth group leader who said, read this, I think you'll find it interesting. And so I did. It was like a lightning bolt from heaven. 45 years ago, my life hasn't been the same since. Because John, God raised up John Stott as a fisherman so that God's hook could be brought into this sinful soul. We cannot conclude better than to hear and to heed the words of Jesus in the upper room. John 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. He who claims to be both Son of God and Savior and Judge of all people now stands before you offering, if only we come to him, fulfillment and freedom and rest. His invitation isn't just to know of him, but to actually follow him. Such an invitation from such a person cannot lightly be dismissed. And he waits patiently for your response. You may want to pray first, after all, he's never in a hurry. So take some time to pray, and then I'll close. Together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. So once again, open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Lord Jesus, we don't know how to trust you. We're not very good at trusting anyone. You are calling us, but we don't hear very well. Forgive us. Help us to come to you as Savior, submit to you as Lord, and follow you as King. Give us strength to follow you for the rest of our lives. And so work in each of us this year as we live with Mark, a follower of Jesus. 
as we hear what he hears given to him by eyewitnesses of Christ. Thank you for this extraordinary story. Thank you for the glimpses we get of Jesus and all of his beauty, compassion, power, tenderness, gentleness, sternness. Give us, we pray, soft hearts that want to do whatever Jesus asks us to do. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and in your word and in this gospel to draw us ever closer to your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.